Now, let me talk to you about the exam style. Remember that uh, you're to answer these questions as if you are speaking to a counselee. So what that, what that means is going to happen is that your answers are typically going to be uh, less formal. They're going to be more like conversation. And that is fine to be that way. In fact, that's the way they want it. Also, you're going to be able to start with the basics, thinking that this person knows nothing about this area and you need to explain it to them, educate them, bring them up, up to speed. So that will, that will change. Many times, and I've uh, looked at a number of exams people have done, it, they write it more as if they are turning it into a, a theology uh, professor or doing it for even a seminary or a college class. And that's not necessarily the case. Now, they don't want, uh, they don't want you to just ignore uh, English grammar. Uh, they want you to use good English uh, grammar. They don't want you to ignore uh, appropriate punctuation and spelling. Fortunately, there are spell checks and things like that. Do uh, adhere to that and show your work as, as quality work. But the style is going to be different than typically when you write uh, something. And so that will certainly help you as you're generating a, a page and a half. And for some of you, I know, as you started working on it and came up and talked to me last time, you were really, uh, you were really troubled. You were way over uh, the page and a half. Now, as, a, as an extreme condenser, I cannot understand that at all. But I, could, uh, I can sympathize with people that I, I just not in the same category seeing the world. Uh, so, but we'll work on that uh, together and uh, trim out the things that are necessary. Now, uh, that's in uh, that area. Now, I have to talk to you about something that uh, I, I just, uh, in fact, I just learned it Really, um, let's see, it's, it's now about 10 after. I maybe learned it 25 minutes ago. Uh, and it, it caught us all by surprise. And I wouldn't have known it except for uh, the this, this speaker who's speaking upstairs, Rob Green. He teaches exactly the, the same class in a similar way at uh, Faith Baptist. And he's down here and we were talking. And we were both at the ACBC conference a week or so ago, and um, they talked there and let us know that they're going to be changing the exam. And that uh, next year, those of us who are members of AC, ACBC, we would be voting on that. So Rob and I anticipate that happening. So he has you know, his people, people coming to Lafayette in February, and we have people here. So I thought about, okay, now what am I going to tell you, and so forth. Well, Rob, uh, he's a fellow, or he's just short. He has one more little step to do before that. He uh, found out the questions are already out there, the new questions. And we were standing in the hallway, uh, and someone flipped their phone on uh, to see what, see, and they've already changed all the questions. So the questions... If you go to the ACBC website, if I understood what everyone was saying and what they were showing me on their phones, there are new questions, all right? So that makes our time especially exciting. You know, when we have 
these, uh, these challenges and opportunities for excellence. All right? So we weren't supposed to vote on these until next October. Well, uh, talking to Rob, we sort of chuckled at each other, and I guess, I guess we voted, you know. Uh, so, but they seem to uh, be good questions and all. But so our understanding, he has talked to the main office because he's thinking about what am I going to do in February. Uh, he's talked to the main office and that they are going to accept the old questions until next October at the National Conference. All right, so that's the word. Uh, so my suggestion to you would be uh, answer these questions and get these babies in as soon as possible, all right? And no later than like the last day of September coming up in uh, 2015, all right? So uh, if, if that is not the understanding, then uh, uh, I will find out, you know, I'll make calls this week. I'll keep you in, keep you in touch as, as we find out things that uh, are different. Now, the theology is, is not changed much at all. The counseling is radically, radically uh, changed. So, but um, from our, all our understanding that uh, we have a year now to uh, basically get these done. So, any questions on that? Yes? Uh, it's good to know we can use these questions, but is there anything good to know as to why they changed the questions so radically? Or Okay. Um, the, uh, the reason they, the theology is pretty much the same, just some clarifications. And there were, there's, as we talked last time, as we worked through the theology, there were a number of times where I sort of had to explain to you what they were looking for. Well, they wanted to get rid of that kind of ambiguity. So that was one reason they changed them. The second reason uh, they made radical changes from what I could just see is um, on the counseling exam, they wanted to create questions that would uh, have you work a little bit harder on things that would make you a better counselor. So actually, the exam has a lot of case studies. It has, all right, there's this situation with a counselor, what would you do? All right, that kind of thing, that'll help, help you work through it. So that their desire is to uh, certainly not... Um, um, just change for the sake of change or anything like that, but to make it even a, a better, you know, learning exercise, the time you're spending is going to be valuable. Now, I can tell you the time you're going to spend working on the old one is, is going to be valuable, too, getting that foundation. All right, good. Any other questions or comments? Yeah. Do you recommend us going ahead and working on the new questions instead? Uh, my understanding is they're going to accept these questions that we have through, through October next year. So now if you look at it and you are just overly excited and you want to do the new exam, my understanding is you can, can do that one. Uh, but uh, Rob, Rob told me, even in February, he's going to teach to the old exam, even, in, even there. So, uh, and maybe make some comments to the new one. All right? So... Uh, we can continue to, to work through that and talk through it, but maybe you, maybe you opened up your computer and went on to the website and saw these new set of questions. You know, you just needed uh, artificial respiration or something like that to resuscitate you, uh, but don't worry about it. We'll work through it uh, 
together. And fortunately, God is in uh, uh, sovereign and control, and uh, sure it'll all work out. And if I'll find out more particulars and uh, let you know if anything's different. Okay, well, let's get started. We're on the very last section in the theology exam, and we're dealing with uh, ecclesiology, basically. That's a big word, and basically it's just talking about the church. So once again, uh, I've tried in the notes, wrote a, write a lot of things down so that you don't have to try and keep up with what I'm going to say. So I'm going to try and pretty much keep uh, to the notes here, uh, and we'll, we'll just stay with them. And, uh, and then for you to circle key words, verses, things like that. Make your own comments. You know, there's something that's talked about in here. A verse pops to mind. Well, you got what I'm going to say. You write down what uh, came to mind for you. So, uh, and I tried to do them in a large format and so forth. So there's plenty of room for you to write. And as I looked around, it was great to see you had written many things that had come to your mind as you worked through it. But now, what is the church? Uh, a suggestion would be, here, I started as just a, uh, a general statement about it. Okay? Church is basically the body of Christ. Okay? Pretty uh, straightforward, simple. As you look in uh, any of the recommended theology books, you will certainly uh, see more. This would be a great place to, as you're looking in the theology book, to uh, make a, a copy from a quote there and include it in your uh, notes and make that uh, uh, reference. One of the key th things is that I want to tell you is that ACBC, even though they are what you would call a parachurch organization, there's no group of elders, they're not under, they're not under our church, they're not under faith church, they're not under... Uh, any church, they're an independent Christian organization. But as a parachurch organization, they have a very high view of the church. So as you're writing your answer, if you also have a high view of the church, that's terrific. Okay? So uh, include that uh, as you're writing through. Now, under there, it, remember, we... Often, in our language, we will use language that refers to the building as the church. We're doing a theological exam, and theologically speaking, it is not a building or an organization. Uh, we are really not, theologically, we are not at the church. We are sitting now, in God's kindness, we are sitting in the church's building. Okay, We are not sitting in uh, the church. The church is, is you. So uh, that's a key to make uh, that kind of uh, di distinction. Okay? You know, we're not uh, uh, going to the church uh, to worship. You know, we are going to the building to worship with the church, God's people, when we do that at different times. Now, who is who is and are these people? They're believers who share the common life of Christ. Okay? That's what makes up the church. It's not just 
those of a particular domination. It's not those that are just living at this time. It's not those that are just living in this country. It's from the, you know, the beginning of those who have come to the Lord through Christ and those who will come to him uh, until he comes back again. Those who share a common life of Christ. Okay? Those who have a common life of Christ, they're going to have a love for God and a love for one another in Christ's power. Okay? You are going to, if you really love Christ, he tells you to really love your brothers and sisters. That's what John 13, you see John 13, 34 and 35, you know, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. I know that is not necessarily that it's new in that it's a sense that it was never around, but the emphasis that the Lord put on it in the very last hours of his life, that is the way we are showing love for God is how we love the church people. So, some other references there. Just, just a note here, there's a very interesting book of, called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, he had started a uh, renegade uh, seminary uh, while the Nazis had control of uh, Germany, both the government and uh, the church was part of the government, at least the organized church. But uh, the true believing church uh, had these renegade seminaries. He taught in one, and as he was thinking about, what is this life together? So it's a very interesting one as you have time to uh, look through that. Okay. Literally, when you see the word church in your translation, whether you're using a, a very literal one uh, or using one that's uh, more of a... Uh, paraphrase and they use the word church, typically that word is just the Greek word for assembly. When uh, there wasn't a whole lot uh, that baggage that went along with it back then when the scriptures uh, were written. So basically it's these uh, assembly of these followers of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk a little bit more in under B, more specifically, what is the makeup of the church? These are regenerated believers in Christ. Okay? Let me give you additional verse than the ones that are there. Let's together look at, at Titus 3, 5, and 6. This will be something in common with all those that are part of our Lord's church. Titus 3, 5 and 6. So it's those who are saved. So verse 5 starts out. He saved us uh, not because of righteous living we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit who he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So a good reference there. It's the regenerated believers in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse, chapter 3 of Titus, verses 5 and 6. Now, so basically, it is all the saints and only the saints. So 
after the Reformation, what happened was that in a lot of areas, uh, a community had a church, and that community, say in German uh, countries, Germanic countries, and in Scandinavia, typically those churches were of a, uh, let's say, Lutheran. Well, everybody uh, then was part of the Lutheran church. And uh, there were some believers, there was a movement that realized that is, that is not theologically what it says about the church. The church isn't just for everybody who lives in a community to belong equally. The only ones that are really part of the church are the ones that are born again, are regenerated, are new, new with a new life. And so that's actually the beginning of the evangelical free church. The evangelical part is that they believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The evangelical free church, the free part is not that we don't have an offering on Sunday mornings. Uh, we do. We don't pass a plate. You have to, put, you have to really uh, try and find out where the little boxes are that you can give some money if you'd like. But uh, the free part, and because I actually had someone say to me, well, it's, you got, it's uh, what, the name free is in there because you don't have to pay anything. Come here, offering. No, the free part is that the church is free from government control, and it's free to live as a church of true believers. So the evangelical free church of America, basically it came from these people who moved from Scandinavia, uh, Sweden and Norway primarily, moved to this country and then started uh, their own churches. Well, when they moved here, they, you could have in a, a town, you would have people from Norway, and up until the 1950s, they were still using Norwegian. And in the 19, and then you'd have a group right down the street, and they would be free church people, and they would be from Sweden, and they would be speaking Swedish. So in the early 1950s, those two groups got together, even though they had fought many wars against each other in the past, and typically you'd think, well, what's the difference between being Norwegian and Swede? Don't say that to someone who's Norwegian or Swede. My wife is in Evanston, she's Norwegian. Uh, so, uh, you don't say that. But they realized we had something more in common uh, we had than just being Norwegian or just being Swedish. We were believers. We were brothers and sisters in Christ. They formed together, and they came together and started truly, theologically, based on the Scripture, what a church is. It's of believers. And so, that's where that uh, came from. Now, the interesting thing, evangelical free, for all believers, but only believers. Now, looking at it, there are people who are believers, like someone like uh, J.I. Packer, uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, D.A. Carson, folks like that, and they believe in uh, infant baptism. Then you have folks that are very baptistic. No, if you... You are baptized once you become a believer. Well, that's the interesting thing about the evangelical free church. People 
are allowed to become members of the Evangelical Free Church, not dependent on what type of baptism you have had. You can be a member of an Evangelical Free Church, and it is based on whether you are a believer or not a believer. Typically, in small evangelical free churches, just to see how this theologically plays out, in a small evangelical free church, if you want to become a member, you, on a Sunday evening, will give your testimony of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And then you will be dismissed from the assembly, and all the believers, all the other members, will then vote of whether you truly gave a credible witness that you were a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay? And that is still practiced in many evangelical free church. Ours is a little bit larger. That would be a little bit cumbersome here. Uh, what we do is that we have our members write out a testimony. And uh, as the elders or representative of the elders look at uh, those testimonies, what they are looking primarily for, does this person give evidence in what they're talking about of moving from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light? Not that their father was a pastor, not that their uncle was a missionary or any of that. Those, those might be great things, and God might have used them, but the important thing is, are you a believer? So that's what they're looking for in this kind of answer. Okay. Then, if you are part of the church, you are called to participate in Christ's ministry in the world. And you'll see some references there from Ephesians. If there's more time, look those up. And the great thing about every person who has been regenerated, and once you're regenerated, you are then into the body of Christ, is that you have been given a certain measure of grace that includes giftedness from the Spirit. So let's look at this verse here. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Let's go there. First Corinthians 12, 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So the neat thing, everyone who has been born again is now part of this assembly that's in Christ. And because you're in Christ, all the spiritual uh, blessings, as it says in Ephesians 1.3, are yours. And one of the great blessings that you have is that you have been equipped for uh, ministry. You have been gifted for ministry in this body, and this uh, giftedness is not primarily to showcase yourself. This giftedness is, as it says in this verse here, it is given for the common good. So if you are gifted with the gift of helps, uh, you are to exercise those, those helps. You are to develop that gift as best you can and then exercise it. So here we are. Uh, you have a sense from God that he wants to use you to help believers grow to be more like Christ. So uh, may God continue to give and grow that giftedness in you, and you're working now to develop that, 
So when the opportunities come, you will be able to exercise that gift of the Spirit in a way that is helpful to those that uh, you speak to, and then you will have the joy of seeing people change before your very eyes. Okay? So that's a little bit about the church. Let's go on to the next question there. And uh, breaking it down a little bit more, all right, now we got the church. So uh, what role does the church play in the believer's, believer's life? And is, what's the role of the church in the counseling uh, process? Is, uh, this is a very important question because basically um, until Jay Adams in the 1960s, counseling, even Christian counseling, had moved outside the realm of the church. Uh, pastors, ministers, they were to preach, and even in, this even occurred in evangelical churches. Their role was to preach. Uh, they might do a little of uh, preliminary type of counseling, but uh, true counseling, looking at people's issues in their life in a deep way, that was a role outside of the church. ACBC's understanding from the scriptures, and if it be yours, is that this role has, should be under the church. So let's look at it here. A broad statement of affirmation. The local church is an important essential part of the body of Christ. In other words, if you really are uh, a regenerate believer born again, uh, you need the church and the church needs you. You desperately need the church, and the church desperately needs you. And so for us here at Grace Fellowship Church, that often comes through the interaction that happens in our, in our small groups. You don't know everybody that's here. I don't know everybody that comes on a, on a Sunday morning. But we hope everyone who is a, a believer is in a small group and that that group there is knowing that person and then that person is using their giftedness at least to impact uh, that group. So you can look at uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. It's for us who believe and the power is for you, uh, plural, not just solo. Sometimes in English, it's hard to tell. You see the word you, is it referring to just you individually, or is it referring to a group of people at large? That's a group of people at large. Now, the model for the church, model is established on the New Testament principles. You see there in Acts 2. And I just want to make a comment here that uh, the model for the church is not a business model with a board of directors and a hired CEO. The model for the church is not like your, let's say, your local YMCA. Your local YMCA, they have a board of directors. When the, the current executive director leaves, then they do a national search and they hire a new uh, director, sort of serve. Actually, what's happening, unfortunately, in many evangelical churches that are large, that's what's happening, is that there's a board of elders. They're the folks that have been here for a long time, and when they, a, one of their significant pastors uh, retires or is called to another field, 
then they act as a, a board there and then sort of hire this person as their, their hired CEO to run things on a daily basis. That is not how the church should operate. The uh, Piper, fortunately, first wrote a paper, and then he wrote a book. It became published uh, in a, a book and called Brothers. We are not professionals. All of us in church, uh, you don't uh, get on your knees and pray for people, nor go and cry with them as a, a CEO or ever think you're above. If anything, in a company, you think of it as a, as a pyramid type of sort of triangle structure, and you have the CEO, the, the leaders sitting here at the top. For the church, as modeling Christ, take a triangle and have it inverted with the point at the bottom, and you put your leaders there at that, that point at the bottom, and they are the ones that are there to shoulder and care for the responsibility of those uh, in uh, the church. So as you're describing that kind of model. The, the role of the church, the role of the church is, is certainly to be involved in um, the ministry of presenting the gospel and then those who are uh, ones that God has died for, then they, their hearts are changed, their, their, uh, their eyes are open, they receive Christ. And then another large part of the church is the edifying of believers. And so for Grace Fellowship Church, yes, we are very involved in ho- wanting to see people uh, come to Christ. But um, for us here, we see that if we build each other up, then we are able to go out in the highways and byways. And for us today, that means talking to your neighbor over the, over the fence, talking over the, the uh, cubicle to the person. Or see Mike here, you know, as he's riding in a, a squad car with the, the guy that's on duty with him that night, talking to him about uh, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And uh, so that's the role of the church, uh, those verses. Key is the Ephesians 4, 11, and 13. So going down to D, the role of people in the church, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, that's the one where the Lord has given, gifted some to be a prophets, apostles, so forth, and pastors and teachers for the works, work of ministry. Yes, we have the uh, work of ministry to care for the nursery. We, you know, we want that done. We want our, ki- our children to have the very best care in terms of safety. We want our children to be able to uh, hear the gospel, understand the stories, get a picture of who, who God is. But also in that, the people who are your pastors and teachers, a major role of them is equipping the saints for the helping of other saints become more and more like Christ, growing all to a maturity uh, together. So that's what that's talking about. Pastors and teachers have that additional servant responsibility. They're, they're responsible to do the equipping of the members to do that. 
And all of us are to be involved in the process of helping all of us grow to maturity to be uh, like our Lord. So take uh, some time and focus on those verses, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Circle those, look at them carefully. See what that is truly saying there in terms of that role within the church of all of us involved in helping one another grow to be more like of the Lord. Okay. Um, e, um, just some more about that. This is specifically about uh, when you get to the counseling process. Remember, the counseling process really isn't something uh, mystical or radically uh, different, or as we see it, it's not something that's uh, added on to the church responsibility. It's what the church should have been doing and is to be doing all along. We are to be discipling each other. And uh, so um, the, the goal of counseling, the building up of believers to make believers more like Christ, that's the same as the, chur- as the church. So counseling one another needs to be throughout the church. So all members of the universal church need to be involved in this form of discipleship. There are those key verses of uh, Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20. We commonly know that as uh, the Great Commission, and I'd like to propose to you that we strike that as the uh, Great Commission and make that the everyday commission. Every day we should be uh, going and teaching people about the Lord and looking forward to him bringing them up to faith and then being baptized in the Holy Spirit and then uh, identified through baptism as believers. So, um, so counseling, we believe, uh, should be under typically the, the care of the church, and so that's, that, why, that is why Grace Fellowship uh, has not worked hard to establish an outside counseling agency, but has worked hard to establish a counseling center that is under uh, the care of Grace Fellowship Church and the counseling center here falls under the care of uh, your elders. So let's go on to the third question. And uh, just to let you know, uh, those who haven't been here before, how it works is uh, I'll go at it hard with you for an hour. Then you'll have, I'll dismiss you for the regular break. And then the next hour, you will work on the questions we just went over. So you can develop your, your rough draft and uh, so forth. So let's go to three. What's the, what is the biblical teaching on women being ordained as officers of, of the church? Okay. This is a very uh, controversial issue. It's a very sensitive issue and one that needs to be uh, handled uh, with uh, respect. So basically, uh, what's the reason for the question? And uh, um, there's one a positive observation understanding that must be, must, I must at least state it as an awareness that there are many very gifted by God uh, women that uh, in, can exercise and have been given uh, gifts of teaching and of uh, leadership. And uh, uh, at this point, 
even within the evangelical community, there are many that are pressing for the ordination of women as elders and or uh, pastors uh, out there. Wayne Grudem, who wrote Grudem's Systematic Theology that some of you are familiar with, uh, wrote another book, and it's, the title is Evangelical Feminism, A New Path to Liberalism. Basically, in this book, he has looked at your mainline churches. Let's take, um, there are believing Presbyterian churches. Uh, if you know anything about Presbyterian uh, churches and denominations, there's Presbyterian Church of America, so it's called PCA. That typically is a very believing church. There's a Presbyterian church called the uh, Associate Presbyterian Church, mainly through the South. That typically is a very uh, believing church. There's a, uh, the, a church called the uh, Evangelical Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, that is a believing Presbyterian uh, church. But still, adding up all the people who belong to those Presbyterian churches does not equal the, the one that belongs to what we typically see, Presbyterian Church, and you'll see USA. Presbyterian USA, that is a church that would fell into this as they moved from originally, they were a very, very uh, devoted group of people. Their seminary uh, is today and was Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, probably the most outstanding theologian that has, God has ever produced or allowed to live in America, he was for a short time president of that seminary. It was very, very believing, many good theologies and teachings and missions work done out of that institution. Uh, as time went on, uh, they became liberal, uh, and then you know, other things happened. Oh, another, uh, just if you run into them, um, another group of believing Presbyterians is the Orthodox Presbyterian Church of America. Jay Adams was a member of the still a member of Orthodox Presbyterians. So there are, are ones, but uh, as you can see, there's all these Presbyterians and those who understand and have studied Presbyterianism, you just refer to them as a split piece. You know, they always seem to be splitting over something. They take their theology very, very seriously. Uh, so the Evangelical Free Church, on the other sense, is uh, we take our theology very seriously, but we don't worry with a thousand items, making sure we got it exactly right. We probably don't have it right to a thousand items. Where uh, I come from a believing Presbyterian background, I have a great appreciation uh, for them, but they seem to get, get it pretty down to the minutia. And if the Presbyterian guy next to them doesn't quite have the same minutia idea that they have, then we have another new denomination uh, happening. So. But they are good, great, great believing people who look at the Lord and his word uh, similar to yours. But there is this major group that has gone adrift. Uh, and Wayne Grudem, so that's what this is about. Definition of liberalism, churches are not following the truth as presented in scripture. Examples of outcome of liberalism, historical Jesus scripture is not the only way of, for salvation. There are basically 
many ways up the mountain. That's how it started to get presented in the 1920s uh, with uh, Princeton as a major, major mover and shaker, that seminary there. And what happened was, you might have read this book, Pearl S. Book, Pearl S. Buck. She was a missionary in uh, China, wrote this book. I think she got a Pulitzer Prize for it. Back in those days, it was the book to read, and she was a great godly woman. Well, her mission board was talking to her, and she basically said, yeah, I, I love being a missionary in China, but uh, Jesus is not the only way. They're, these people have been living for centuries, and they have their way to God. I think Jesus is the quickest way and the truest way, but they can go up other ways up the mountain. So this was, a, this was Presbyterian USA Mission Board, and uh, they did not do anything about it. They sent her back. And uh, there were a couple people on the board, a guy named Mason, uh, and he made such a fuss, they actually excommunicated him out of the Presbyterian Church USA, and uh, he went on, he was a professor at uh, uh, Princeton, he went on, and that was the beginning of Westminster Theological Seminary in the uh, Philadelphia area. Princeton's in New Jersey, he went across the river and started that, uh, that seminary uh, there. And that all was a fight, basically, over is Pearl's Buck, is, is she really presenting the gospel, or is she presenting, is there a different one? This is very key, and is traced it back. Now, they typically don't say there's so much as many ways up the mountain. The way it's in the World Council of Churches, the way it's presented now, is that there is just one way. Isn't that what the scriptures say? But the way it's presented now, Jesus took different forms in different cultures. So still, there is one way, that's what the scriptures say. But, well, you know, you have the Mohammeds and Buddhas and things like that as Jesus taking that form in that culture. So it gets pretty crazy. Uh, but one of the key, one of the things that uh, Grudem says the fall here came out of love and respect for women serving in the church. And once they were said in the scriptures, that women shouldn't have leadership roles or teaching roles over men, once they opened up that gate and said, you know, that really doesn't matter anymore, then you could start to see those denominations then also were open to other theological changes when it came down to things of Christ, the inerrancy of the word of God. So that's why this is a big issue and one for you to legitimately and honestly, uh, you know, wrestle uh, with. So going over to the uh, paragraph there, what does God's word say? And you can look at that passage. I said it in the paraphrase of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 12, that, you know, do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So this is a combination of teaching uh, having where the teaching does have authority over what one should uh, think and do. The argument for ordination of women when dealing with this passage, this is how it goes. The condition was only cultural. Basically, it was an example of cultural statements that we do not usually follow. Okay, like 
Oh, you know, the Bible says, uh, give each other a holy kiss. Now, I, I, I greeted a number of you, but I didn't, I, I didn't give any of you a holy, holy kiss when you walked in, a thing like that. So we, don't, we don't follow that necessarily. Now, if some of you do, that's perfectly fine. But I don't feel mandated by Scripture that I have to do that or I didn't appropriately greet you. Uh, nor many of us in our community, we hold to the Word of God. But uh, we, we don't think our women need to wear uh, head coverings. And there are some, you know, uh, quite a bit written about that in, in Corinthians. Now, if you go to uh, areas in Ohio where there are Amish and Mennonite, many of those are believers. And I grew up in uh, uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, Lots of Amish, lots of Mennonite there. And, uh, you know, it was very, very common uh, for me to see. I grew up, actually, I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia. My grandparents, their farm uh, was in Lancaster County. And uh, so I spent a ton of my life uh, there in that uh, uh, community. So, but that's the way it is. So those who say, oh, okay, it was just a problem back then. Uh, basically, you know, Paul said that because you just had some ladies that were just, uh, you know, out of control. You know, we all get out of control once in a while here. And they were unruly in that church at, in Ephesus. And he was given some extra instruction to Timothy uh, to try, sort of try and settle things down there so the business meetings didn't go, go on forever and ever. And uh, so, but... For us, as we look at that passage, uh, as, <clears throat> as hard as it might be for us, uh, remember, context is king when you are interpreting. And God provides, when he wrote the passage, had Paul write it, he provides two arguments for not having women overseeing men. One was from the order of creation, Adam, uh, was formed first, then Eve, then a second justification, based on the fact that Eve was the first to succumb to the temptation of the devil. It's not for us to whether we think that justifies it or not. That's the justification that God had Paul write down. Those, those statements of why having men have that uh, position are, are not cultural reasons. They are stated on theological reasons that go back. And so it's not something you can just wipe away because you might have had some unruly women there in Ephesus. They are, those statements are as true then as they are uh, today. So that I don't want to ever say that uh, there aren't women who are better teachers than men. There certainly are. And uh, just as there are, in some families, there are certain women who probably would do a better job leading that family than that husband, especially if she is a long-term believer and he is new to Christ. But we, it's not up to us. It's up to the way the Spirit has written things, and the, it's for us to be under all of us uh, submitting to one another, and this is a place where God has asked the ladies to submit uh, to the leadership of the uh, men and uh, uh, God continue to help us men 
to serve graciously, to serve well, and to be very, very considerate and understanding and respectful of all the women who are under our care, especially the women that are in our household and the women that are in our house and church of faith. So our position here at Grace Fellowship Church is the one that uh, I've uh, shared with you uh, here. So, all right. Uh, that was question number. That was question number three. Let's continue on. And uh, that questionnaire: What authority, if any, does the church have over individuals and the counseling process? And answer the big question first. Uh, does the church have authority over individuals? According to the scripture, the church is to exercise authority over individuals and the counseling process. From 1 Peter 5, 2-4, you'll see there, it says, you know, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So the leaders certainly are to shepherd those under their care. This, this care, remember as I talked about that inverted triangle, this care is to be done with the mindset of, of a servant. Now, that's, that's what our scriptures say, use the word servant. Actually, the word is doulos, and in the Greek, it's basically a low-level slave, is the way once we are saved and as we're serving one another, that is the way uh, we should do it. And this, this care and this shepherding, it includes counseling. And counseling, I like to use this other phrase of intensive discipleship. Uh, other people as necessary. Let's look at Colossians 1 and look at those last, I think these are the last two verses of that um, first chapter in uh, Colossians. This is... Um, this is, these are great verses because it's one of the uh, places that actually uses the word nutheteto, which is where they get, if you remember the old name, nuthetic or uh, NANC, National Association of Nuthetic Counselors, came from this where it talks about. So as you look at uh, your translation, mine, it says, uh, he is the one we proclaim, uh, admonishing is what it says in translation. I'm using a lot of the uh, translations use warning, whatever, and that's, that's true. Admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That is basically what counseling is. As we're speaking to the people, we do not have the answers ourselves. The answers come from God, they're in the Word, and we need others to help us understand that. So, he is the one, you know, Jesus, he's the one we proclaim, uh, admonishing and teaching everyone within the church with all wisdom. This is just not for Paul. This is just not for the church. It's for everyone. So we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Fully mature, like Christ, is the target. And so each of us are going to do this, as it says in verse 29. To this end, I strenuous, strenuously contend. I can strenuously work at it. 
with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me to do. So as you have the responsibility, as you have the privilege, as you have the opportunity to counsel someone, you are going to work extremely hard at it. You are working at it with the spiritual energy that the Lord gives you uh, so that as you work on it, and in that strength, using that and serving as a person, uh, those, those people. So uh, that includes counseling. So here are some other verses. So Romans 15, 14, uh, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. You'll see uh, the Romans verse. Take some time to look at that. Let's look at Galatians uh, 6 real quickly. This is really really key. You'll probably refer to Galatians 6 a number of times in your theological uh, and counseling exam here. <clears throat> I'll share it with you. Uh, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, okay, this is a command, this is what we're all to be doing in this church assembly of believers. You who live by the Spirit, or in some translations it says you who are spiritual, uh, should restore that person gently. Okay? So, someone's caught in a sin. You know, we just can't let them, okay, they're doing their thing. I'm not to be, in, you know, not to be nosy. I'm not to get in people's lives. Someone who's an extreme introvert, introvert like myself, those kind of thoughts come to my mind. But that's not what the Word of God says. I must approach that person, uh, not because I want to get that person in line, but I want that person to be fully living the life that Christ has for them. And if he wants me to help, then I'm to step up. You're to step up. Uh, hopefully, I will be living by the, the Spirit. I will be a spiritual person, the fruit of the Spirit. I talked about earlier in Galatians. That is evident in your life and my life. And we are going to gently work to restore. That word restore there is, is the same kind of, is used other places in the scripture where it's talking about nets that are broken, they need to be mended. An arm that needs to be uh, uh, set and healed. Okay? Restore that person gently. Now watch out yourselves so you also don't be tempted. Now I can tell you as a counselor how you will be tempted one way you will be tempted is when you see God do a work right in front of you and you think and you see that person change, you will be tempted to say, ha, aren't I the greatest counselor this world has? You know, you will be tempted out there. I, I am God's gift to this person. You know, you, you don't want to be tempted that way. Another way you will be tempted is, boy, that, that guy really is a jerk. You know, I would never think about doing that sin. Okay, you might not, but you're doing, I'm doing others that I need help with. The third way that you will be tempted is that uh, I do a lot of counseling with men. Men deal with uh, uh, sexual sin, uh, entraps them a number of times. And some of the stories that I hear about sexual sin, um, uh, I have enough ways to get tripped up sexually, but some of these things I never even thought of or heard of. 
and then I hear of them, and once you hear of them, you have to keep your mind and thought under control to not let your mind run down that path of what you have, have heard. Okay? So make sure you are well protected as you, as you pray, as you counsel. And men, women, you'll face the same thing. Two, what you're doing by doing verse 1, you are carrying each other's burdens. It is great, and we should do it. It is great when one of our brothers or sisters has a leaky roof on their house. But fix the leaky roof, but also help that person's soul too. All right? And carry each other's burdens. That's what you're doing here. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Law of Christ is used nowhere. That phrase, law of Christ, is used nowhere else in the Scripture. Law of Christ, I believe, is referring back to what we looked at earlier. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I have for you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By loving one another, this is how they will know that you are disciples. This is the law of Christ, the way we should live. The way of loving another believer is helping them when they sin. And that's what we're supposed to do. Okay, so that is all wrapped up in uh, the church. Now, when let's go to, let's see. All right, I got like two minutes. Let's go to Matthew. Let's, I won't go to Matthew 18. Basically, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, you'll deal with it uh, in another question in the counseling exam. But basically, this is church discipline uh, talking about. And it's, it, church discipline is not to hammer on somebody. Church discipline is only to help someone be restored who has gone in, in error uh, or they never were a believer and they need to come to faith. So you can read the notes there and you're helping a person recognize their sin and there's a process that, goes, that you can go through. First one person goes, if that isn't effective, then they take two or three. If that's not effective, you tell it to the church, elders, others, get around. If that's not effective, then they're treated like an unbeliever. You know, they're not, if they're not living like a believer, then you're going to treat them as an unbeliever, not to be mean, but this is, this is who you're really demonstrating, who you are, and hopefully help them come uh, to faith. So that's there. Uh, so you can work through that and look at it. So basically, the church all believers and only believers and the role of counseling and helping one another is a very, very important. Counseling is not something that should be added to, to the church. It should just naturally be there. We just happen to be in a time in the history of the church of recovery of it back to the church living as the church should live in the power of Christ. Okay? You got two other questions in the council in the theological exam, uh, general questions, and you, these are not questions that you need a page and a half on. I've got some notes here for you. Uh, first one: Are you involved in a larger group, organization, or denomination which disagrees with ACBC statement of faith? So, what do you need to do? You go on the website and you look at ACBC statement of faith. And you look at the larger organization that you're a part of. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't mean uh, 
you know, the, your Rotary Club. This is talking about, you know, the, uh, you know, what church you're a part of. Or if you're a part of a, um, let's say you're part of a missions group or something like that. Then you will look at that and see, you know, is there something different here? And uh, uh, if so, you know, how is there different? Explain what you're doing to influence your group toward uh, this position. So that's what that's about. And so you don't, you know, you might be done very quickly. Uh, two, if received as an ACBC member, can you sign the membership covenant? Go ahead and look at that. See what that says and say, yeah. Do, and if your answer is yes, you state, yes, I have read the covenant and uh, can sign it. You don't have to, you know, write it in big font or anything like that so it takes a page and a half. Don't worry about it. You know, it's one of those. 